I enjoy all kinds of music. But I do have a special place um, for some classical pieces. Uh, and my favorite classical pieces are by Mozart and Beethoven. From Beethoven, uh, my classical, the two, the two pieces of Beethoven that I absolutely really love are the Seventh Symphony and the Ninth, of course. I've listened to the Seventh and the Ninth Symphonies probably a hundred times. And it's amazing to me how you have to acquire a taste for them. You can get a little bit of the melodies periodically, but until you uh, begin to take them seriously and acquire a taste, you don't understand the depth of meaning and the depth of the, the music spoken until you begin to really get the taste of it. Now, why am I speaking like that? Because when I was in graduate school, I heard one sentence that I have always treasured. And the sentence that I heard was, truth is symphonic. Now think about that. Truth is symphonic. Now, what exactly does that mean? Normally, we think of truth as uh, monolithic. We speak of truth as a, as a, uh, a singular thing. This is the truth. Not those are the truths, but this. And so we think of what is the truth, thinking of one thing. And it is one thing. But that one thing is like a symphony. So when you listen to any symphony by any piece, even rock music, but it's more complex in classical. When you listen to a piece of music, I'm remembering now because another one of my favorite pieces of music is a, a rock and roll song by, by, by uh, a group from the 60s called Cream. And Cream has, has a, a song called uh, uh, strange brew. Anyway, the more you listen to any piece of music, classical or whatever it is, if it's a good piece of music, you begin to see the levels of what you can concentrate on. You concentrate on, on different melodies, on the accompanying. You can translate on, on the basses, on the drums. You can translate on the violins, on the 
And you, you can focus on so many different levels. And that's when you begin to appreciate the sheer genius of whoever put that together. Now, the reason I'm speaking like that is going back to what I just said. Truth is symphonic. Why? Because when you hear the truth, the truth is not monolithic. It's not one thing. Actually, a symphony, let's just take Beethoven's Ninth, it is one thing. But it is one thing made up of many parts. It's interesting because it, it loosely, loosely, it uh, pre, sort of prefigures or figures what the Trinity might be like. You have one symphony, but it is many parts, and none of them really stand by themselves very well. You have to take the whole symphony or the whole song, whatever that song may be. Now, the reason I say that today, that truth is symphonic, is because today we're celebrating the feast of the Transfiguration. And when you first think of the Transfiguration, when I was young, all I thought of was, well, there's Jesus, and there must be a light show around him, and he's kind of buzzing, you know, all kinds of lights are behind him, and he's, he's glowing, and Moses and Elijah are talking to him. But it's not until you begin to look closely, and you begin to look at the echoes that each of those pieces of information is bringing to you, it's not until then that you begin to see the echoes of the Old Testament being repeated and exactly how they are being interwoven into the transfiguration. So what I'd like to do is just spend a little time with you just unpacking a little bit. And it's a little bit, because, as you know, I, I've received a lot of messages from our parishioners that they ask me to not speak so, so short. They ask me to speak longer homilies. You, you, you don't think that's real? It, it isn't. It's... That's all right. But let me just give you a little bit. Now, I want you to, I want you to, I want you to understand this. Right? Some of the comparisons. And by, by the way, before I get into this, I get a lot of this from Thursday nights. Every Thursday night, I open up a Zoom call with a New Testament scholar whose name is Brant Petrie. And in that Zoom call, I usually have anywhere between 23 and 30 people. 
And he takes apart the readings for the following Sunday. And you would not believe what the readings are like until you listen to them analyzed and compared. And then you begin to go, oh my God, did I have a superficial interpretation of what's going on? So, remember then, look what is about to happen. Jesus takes three of his apostles. He takes Jesus, Peter, James, and John at different times, but he, they seem to be kind of the inner circle of the twelve apostles. And he takes them up to a mountain to pray. Now, the very first echo that you begin to see is that any time that there is a mountain mentioned in the Old Testament, encounters with God occur at the tops of mountains. Now, we can't think of mountains, though, the way that um, we, if you would if you lived in Colorado. These are... In Palestine, when they're talking about a mountain, we would call it a very large hill, okay? And so Jesus takes James, Peter, James, and John to the mountain to pray. Now, I want you to notice what happens when he begins to pray, and then we begin to ask why it's happening. Listen to this. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance and his clothing became dazzlingly white. Now, immediately then, two men were conversing with him. Now, the apostles are sitting there and later on it says, that they were half asleep, which there seems to be their permanent condition on a regular basis. But they were, the two who were with him were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory. Now listen, listen to that. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and then spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now just hold it right there. First of all, why Moses and Elijah? Why? Why not Adam and Eve? Why not Joshua? Why not Abraham? Why Moses and Elijah? And when you when you in, when you think of Moses and Elijah, what do they have in common in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, the, only, the, two, the things that Moses and Elijah have in common is that they both climbed a mountain and they both wanted to see God's face. That's what they both have in common. They wanted to see God's face at the top of a mountain. With Moses, Moses is allowed to see the back of God as God passes by. 
And Elijah goes out to see God's face, but he has to wrap his cloak around his eyes as God passes by. Because in the Old Testament, the idea of seeing the face of God to a human being would be so overwhelming that it would kill you. You cannot stand and see the face of God and live. And so, but they were both who, people who desired to see the face of God. And so here we have Moses and Elijah, the two only who were given even a slight glimpse, and they're sitting next to Jesus. Now why? Because that is a symbol that for the first time in all of human history, two human beings are beholding the face of God. The reason that they can see the face of God is because at this moment, God has a real human face. The face of the Son of God made man, the Son of God incarnate. And then Moses and Elijah seeing God's face in the face of Jesus begin speaking uh, uh, to him. <clears throat> what are they talking about? And remember, there are different translations in the Bible. But the truth, the translation that is operative is the one they use in this one that I have on my iPhone. They use a different word in the ones for the reading. Notice what Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus about because this is central to the meaning of the transfiguration. Who appeared, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, they are already in heaven, they are in glory, who appeared in glory and spoke, listen, of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. They spoke to him of his exodus. That is the exact word that is used there. He spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, when somebody speaks to you about the exodus, what is the primary reference of exodus? Well, the primary reference is the exodus of the people of Israel led by Moses who takes the people of Israel out of the slavery of Egypt and takes them through the desert in which the desert they spent 40 years and then they finally arrive in the promised land where Jerusalem is built. Jerusalem stands for the promised land. So notice that the first exodus, what is the first exodus? The first exodus is liberation from a condition of slavery. The Egyptians had enslaved the Jews. Moses 
has an appearance of God in the burning bush, and God says, I have heard the cries of my people. They are enslaved in Egypt. Go to my people and tell Pharaoh in Egypt what I have said. And then after Moses does that, and of course we have the, the crossing of the Red Sea as God leads them and especially leads them by the presence of a cloud, which has a special significance. He leads them across the Red Sea and into the desert and in gives them the law and then 40 years later, because of their rebellion, because they rebelled against God in the, in the, in, while Moses was receiving the commandments, that generation is, is told that they have to spend the 40 years in the desert. And their generation will not enter the kingdom, will not enter the promised land. Even Moses himself does not enter the promised land. He gets to see it, but he does not enter it. Now, why then are Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus about his exodus? Not about the exodus, but about his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Notice the first exodus was accomplished in Egypt and brought to the promised land. But Jesus' exodus begins in Jerusalem. Jesus is about to establish an exodus out of Jerusalem. But the problem is where? And what does it have in common with the other exodus? Are you saying, are we comparing the existence of the Jews in Jerusalem to their slavery in Egypt? Yes. Now, we might ask, how can you... They're not slaves. Now, they're occupied by the Romans, but they're not slaves. Now, notice, what Jesus is about to do has the same dynamic, the dynamic of liberation from slavery. Now, the question then becomes, if Jesus is going to lead a group out of slavery, a people who is obviously not in slavery, what is he leading him out of if he is going to accomplish his exodus in Jerusalem? And there are two alternatives. One is there is no slavery, and they're just using that word, but that doesn't happen in the Bible. There is a slavery, and you can't see it. Now, let me put a parenthesis here. What is slavery? You know, this is a rhetorical question. You don't have to hand, uh, raise your hand. 
What is slavery? I don't have my dictionary here, but I would classify slavery as being a condition of being captive against your will and made to do something that you do not want to do and in which you have no choice but to do what the master tells you to do, even by force. You are enslaved. Now, I'd like you to consider this. Are you enslaved? Do you fit that at all? Are you enslaved? Now, most of us would say, no, I'm an American. I'm in America. I'm free. Yes, to some degree. To some degree. But let me ask you this. Are you totally free? 100%. Are you free from suffering? Are you free from evil? Most of all, are you free from death? Are you free from the fact that everything you love, everything you cherish, is going to be totally demolished into ashes? Whether you like it or not, everything that you care about is going to end up in dust and ashes in a garbage dump. Are you free from that? No. Ah, so then you do qualify in the definition of a slave. You are a slave and I am a slave to the human condition. Part of a definition of a slave is, I'm being held against my will. Anybody here want to experience eternal death? Anybody here want to be torn apart from everything and everyone you love, and everything and everyone you love turn into nothing? Anybody here willingly submit? to a totally absurd life in which you tried to build everything that you could, that you cared about, and nothing remains? Anybody here who doesn't want some kind of liberation from the deepest slavery that exists? The answer is no. At the, at the core, every single one, one of us wants to live. Every single one of us wants the people we love not to have an ending. Every single one of us doesn't want to see everything we have cared about destroyed. As much as you try not to think about it, as much as you try to entertain yourself to death, death will come. As much as you hate it, you are a slave. That's all I. Is there any liberation? Is there any hope? 
That reality, folks, has become so clear to me as I've entered my 70s. It has become so clear. I know, I, do you realize I have been in this parish for 24 years? And I know those 24 years have gone by super fast. I'm 72. I don't think I have 20 more years. Maybe, but outside, no. Not being diabetic. Maybe 10, maybe 15. But I'm on the downhill slide. And facing me is a future in which my body will, be, will continue to decompose right under me. I feel it every day in my arthritis. I feel it in my decomposing. Everything is getting saggier, getting spots all over my head. Hair's gone. My mom used to tell me, my mom used to, when, when she was, when she, bless her heart, she's passed away now, but I used to say, Mom, when she was older, Mom, why do you take so long to get ready? And she said, Mario, a young person goes out all disheveled and they look adventurous and pretty because they're disheveled. But when you're old and you go out and you look, you're disheveled, you just look disgusting. And that's true. That's true. And so what Jesus, what is the exodus? The exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish is to help to show us that the liberation of, from slavery was only the beginning. That the deepest slavery that there is in humankind is the slavery to suffering and death. And that we as human beings, at the center of our desire, is a desire to live, a desire to go on. How much happiness do you want? A day? A year? 20 years? 50 years? If you look at yourself, you really want happiness that doesn't end. Is there any way that we're going to get that? Or are we all going to, are living in an illusion? Is religion, as Karl Marx said, the drug of the people? Is it just an illusion? What Jesus is about to do, they spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. The exodus starts in Jerusalem by his crucifixion. Jerusalem is the place where all of us live. We live among sinners, among people condemned to death. And from there, each of us is taken to our individual crosses. Each one of you is going to climb a cross. I will climb a cross. Each one of you will climb your own cross. I'll never forget my father. When my father was dying of cancer, 
I stood before his bed, and there was a crucifix on top of his bed. And I remember looking at that crucifix with Jesus hanging on it and looking down at my father at almost a skeleton because he had lost so much weight. And at that moment, I thought, my God, my dad, my, Jesus was crucified to a wooden cross that was outside of him. And my father is crucified to cancer. And I'm standing at the foot of the cross. Which one will your cross be? How will you die? How will you die and how will you interpret your dying moments? And Jesus, as he hung upon the cross, was his exodus. He was exiting this life and he was going through the desert of death, through the desert of suffering, through the desert of feeling abandoned. And as he almost gave up, when he said, Father, why have you abandoned me? As he went to the lowest part of being God-forsaken, he put his spirit and he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he entered the final phase, the desert of death. But the point is that three days later, on that Sunday, God would not allow him to die, but brought him to life in the resurrection. Jesus came into the promised land that every single one of us has been waiting for. Life eternal. You know, there's a part in the Bible when Jesus, if you ask Jesus, why did you come on this earth? It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Jesus said, when he answers that question, he says, I have come that you may have life and have it in its fullness. What does that imply? That we don't. That life is a tease. You get to taste. You get to taste the want for permanent happiness. But you don't get it. You just get to taste it. And then it's taken away from you. When Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full, it's because we don't have it to the full. The transfiguration was Jesus' way of showing his disciples a little preview of what was about to happen. A little preview so that when they saw him crucified, <clears throat> they might understand what was about to happen. And that's today's feast day. Truth is him symphonic. And I haven't even gone down into all the little details. The transfiguration isn't about some guy looking with bright lights. It's about an exodus, a liberation from slavery, a liberation that we are given an opportunity to participate in. The greatest opportunity of your entire life
the opportunity to break out from the slavery of sin, suffering, and death and get the wish that is underneath every wish you've ever had. A wish that says that desire that you have for life everlasting, for life without happiness, without end, that, not, that is not the opium of the people. That is real. And that's why we call the gospel good news. The transfiguration is just a preview. Truth really is symphonic.